Well, let me encourage you to turn with me to the book of Micah. Uh, Today we begin a new series in the Old Testament book of Micah. Uh, This morning we're going to be looking at Micah chapter 1 in its entirety. Uh, However, I I would ask you to take a look at verse 1 with me because it will help us get oriented uh, as we get started here in uh, this new series in the book of Micah. Uh, You'll read in verse 1 of uh, chapter 1, Micah, that the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Notice a few important things in that opening verse. Notice, first of all, the origin of this book. It is the word of the Lord that came to Micah. This little book did not originate with Micah. It is the word of the Lord that came to him, which he saw. It is a word that Micah received. And that's, I think, very important for how we are going to approach and read this book as we work our way through it. One of the things we need to recognize as we say this is the word of the Lord is that this is not merely a word that God spoke in the past, the long distant past, to a people who are far distantly removed from us and that therefore this word is largely irrelevant to the people of God today. That is not how we are going to approach the book of Micah. Rather, we are going to approach the book of Micah in these terms. That the word of the Lord which he once spoke through the prophet Micah to his people is the word of the Lord that God continues to speak to his people today. Um, This is how the church has historically read the prophets. The word of the Lord to the covenant people of God. And so just... As a couple of of examples of this kind of reading of the book of Micah, Martin Luther, when he lectured on the book of Micah to his students, he he saw the, the promises and the warnings as the word of the Lord for his own moment in history. John Calvin, preaching in 16th century Geneva to the Genevan Christians and and various immigrants from all over Europe. He preached the immediacy of the word as a living word to the 16th century audience before him. And so we need to understand this as we come to this book. This is the word God spoke through Micah, which he continues to speak to his covenant people today. The second thing I want you to notice here from this opening verse is while the word originates with the Lord, it's given through the prophet Micah. So the the word of the Lord came to Micah. He he acts as a human instrument of the word of the Lord to the people of God. Uh, Micah, let's think about Micah just for a second. The name Micah means who is like the Lord. It's a rhetorical question expressing wonder at the incomparable God of Israel. And in the coming weeks, we're going to see that Micah has a great deal to say to us about this incomparable God. 
One of the interesting things to notice in the book of Micah is that his name appears at the beginning, and then later his name is mentioned at the end. You might easily miss it uh, in the ESV because it's translated, Who is like the Lord? But Micah's name bookends the book of Micah. And so in between this rhetorical question, who is like the Lord, we are receiving a substantial answer (laughs) of what this transcendent, holy, just, loving, merciful God is like. He's a God who takes his covenant with his people seriously and who will brook no rivals. A God who controls the nations, even the dreaded Assyrian army. And yet, while he is in control of even the the mightiest of nations, he is deeply concerned with the plight of the poor and their exploitation at the hands of the covetous rich. He's concerned with the truth, with a just society, with human rights, with what it means to be human. He is concerned about those suffering injustice And we're going to see that he is furious with the oppressors. There is no one like the Lord who is high and lifted up, but also deeply concerned with matters of the mundane. Issues like poverty and wealth, justice and mercy, widows and orphans. And I want to suggest that all of that is tied up in Micah's name. Who is like the Lord? But notice as well here that Micah is identified as Micah of Morasheth. Uh, Morasheth was a, a relatively modest agricultural town or community in southern Judah at the time. Now, let's try to situate this in history a little bit. At this point in Israel's history... Israel is divided into two kingdoms. Okay, so remember, there are uh, the, the, the ten northern tribes with the capital city of Samaria. And then there are the, the two tribes of Benjamin and Judah making up the southern kingdom with their capital city being Jerusalem. And um, the, Micah resided in that southern kingdom, but he didn't live, he wasn't from Jerusalem. But notice that he has a message for both the southern and northern kingdoms. He has a message for the entirety of God's people. I think something to appreciate, if we're going to understand some of the themes that we find in the book of Micah, is to recognize that he was not raised among, we might say, the elites of Judah. He will minister there, but that's not where he comes from. He's not one of them. Uh, Today we might say Micah was from uh, the hick town way out in the boonies of Judah. Which is why it shouldn't surprise us to find that I think a great deal of his prophetic word reflects a special sensitivity to the abuse of power by the elites of society at the expense of the vulnerable and poor among God's people. See, Micah has this burning burden for the little guy, for the marginalized, for the disenfranchised, and he is sensitive to the abuse of power among God's people. Another thing to notice here as we get started in verse 1 is 
is uh, a little bit more about the time of Micah's ministry. It, it said it happened in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, uh, who were kings of Judah. And so here, Micah's ministry is being situated in history somewhere between 35 to 53 years in length, depending on when he started during the first king's reign and the third king's reign. So somewhere between 740 and 687 BC. Um, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, was one of his contemporaries serving in Jerusalem. One of the ways to think about Micah is Micah is a kind of cliff notes version of the book of Isaiah. If you read them side by side, you'll find many of the same themes in both of the books. And the big issue during this time, geopolitically, for God's people, for both the northern and the southern kingdoms, is the real threat of the Assyrians. The Assyrians were the the superpower of the day, and it looked like they were poised to strike and to take over at any time. And we're going to see in the first three chapters of uh, the book of Micah that the internal spiritual rot and the moral decay that is occurring among God's people will bring them under divine rebuke and discipline. And God will use the mighty Assyrians to bring a terrible season of judgment upon them. So Israel in the north and Judah in the south, these were the times they were both descending into patterns of worldliness and greed. Micah will speak about the rich preying upon the poor. Now keep in mind, we're talking about God's people here. We're not talking about worldly societies, cultures out there. We're talking about the covenant people of God. The rich preying upon the poor. Idolatry, rampant. The church at this time suffered from cultural captivity and nobody seemed to care. And so God sends his messenger, Micah, to sound the alarm. It was an alarm that the people of God needed to hear in that day. And I think it's an alarm that the people of God need to hear today. How easy it is for us, when you think about it, amidst all of the affluence that we enjoy, the ease of life that we enjoy, to look past the needs of the weakest and the least, to look the other way um, at someone else's plight and problems. How easy it is to worship on Sunday while living like the nations of the world, Monday through Saturday. How easy it is in our business dealings to, to tear down the little guy and say, look, buddy, it's not personal, it's just business. Or to indulge open wickedness in our children because in our shame it's easier to look the other way and cover it up and just play the part so long as everything looks good in the public eye. Friends, these were the sort of problems plaguing God's people and Micah's day and they are the very same issues in our own day. And what we're going to see is God has something say about it all. God has something to say about it all. Well, that was supposed to be a brief introduction uh, 
to the book of Micah. So let's, let's get started with Micah chapter 1. We're going to consider um, the word of the Lord here under four headings today. Okay, In verses 2 through 5, we're going to look at the shock of God's judgment. The shock of God's judgment. And in verses, uh, uh, verses 8 through 9, we're going to think about the attitude of God's servant. And then in verses 10 through 16, the irony of God's wrath. And then we'll back up and look at verse 15 and think together about the way of God's mercy. Okay, so those four themes, the shock of God's judgment, the attitude of God's servant, the irony of God's wrath, and the way of God's mercy. Let's be on the look, look out for those things as we read Micah chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. Hear, you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, And will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him. And the valleys will split open like wax before fire. Like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob. And for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable. It has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all in Beth Leophra. Roll yourselves in the dust, pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir, in the nakedness, in nakedness and shame. The inhabitants of Zayanan do not come out. The lamentation of Beth Hazel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Meroth wait anxiously for good, because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds to the chariots and habits of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were formed the transgressions of Israel. Therefore, you shall give parting gifts to, to Morsheth Gath. The houses of Akzig shall be a, a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Merishah. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. 
Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. Uh, A number of years ago, uh, an evangelist by the name of Paul Washer stood in front of thousands of teenagers to preach. And he spoke to them about what he called cheap grace. The idea that somebody could make a profession of faith, but then basically go on to live however they please, because Jesus really doesn't have anything to do with your day-to-day life. Uh, He talked to them about how that way of thinking is is basically treating Jesus like a fire insurance policy, something you take out once, but then really don't give any thought to after that. Washer reminded these young people that Jesus calls us to give up our lives in order to find it, to to follow him, um, to answer the call, to take up our cross, and that the Christian life is a changed life, and the Christian life is a life that is being changed. And as he was saying these things, the crowd was cheering him on. They were clapping for him. And when he finished saying what he thought needed to be communicated, he, he stopped, he listened to the cheers, and then he looked out on this crowd of teenagers and he pointed at them and said, I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. And the whole crowd went silent. The crowd was stunned. Now, I think something like that is the way Micah opens up his, his book, his word from the Lord. He does something very similar here with the self-assured people of God in his own generation. So consider with me, first of all, the shock of God's judgment. Notice how he begins in verses 2 through 5. In verse 2, he announces, he, he has a message from the Lord for all people here You peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth. He is summoning the whole earth, all of the peoples, to hear this word from the Lord. It says, let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. And so the whole world is being called to attention to hear the word of God. Then in verse 3, He describes the Lord like a a judge coming out of his chambers to issue his verdict of judgment. The Lord is coming out of his place and he will see the imagery there. Tread upon the high places of the earth. And then his coming is vividly described as he treads upon the high places of the earth. What do the mountains do? They, They melt away like wax before Uh, a fire burning. The valleys split open. Think of the most substantial aspects of material reality and they dissolve in the presence of the holiness of the Lord. What we need to appreciate is that at this point, the people of Judah and Israel, represented by their capital cities, Samaria and Jerusalem, they would have been hearing this, thinking, okay, Another oracle of judgment against the nations, summoning the people to account, to hear the word of the Lord. Judgment on the wicked. God is going to 
bring judgment on the nations, and he's going to deliver us. This is good stuff. This is great, Micah. Keep going. So you can imagine them nodding in approval to Micah's message. And then verse 5. Verse 5 is intended to hit like like a jolt of lightning, like an ice cold bucket of conviction over the heads of God's people. It says, all this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. Now, hang on a second. <laughs> You've got to put yourself in the shoes of some of the original hearers. You can imagine them saying, hold up, Micah. What did you just say? Come again? Did you just say because of Jacob and Israel? I think, I think you misspoke, right? You, you just said divine judgment is coming on account of God's people. But don't you mean to be saying that it's coming on account of the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Egyptians or the Edomites? Isn't, isn't that what you mean? No. No, Micah's saying you heard me right. Here, we need to understand that the news of the Lord coming in judgment is not good news for God's people. It's in fact meant to be a sobering warning. Look at what he says. What is the the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem. Now again, these are the capital cities representing the whole, the seats of religious and political power. And Micah is saying that they are the epitome of wickedness against which the Lord is coming to judge. And his judgment will be terrible when it comes. Verse 6, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. In other words, Samaria will be laid to waste. Desolation. And we need to understand that these temporal judgments that occurred during the Old Testament picture are meant to teach us about a pattern that will ultimately find its fulfillment In the day of Jesus Christ. And here is a warning to the people of God. Who who on the one hand profess the name of Yahweh. And then on the other hand live just like the surrounding nations. Now why is God going to do this? Take a a look at verse 7. It gives us a hint. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them. And to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. Micah is reminding the people of God in his day. That idolatry for them is adultery. Idolatry is spiritual Adultery. The people have turned to idols like an unfaithful husband who goes to a prostitute. And so he will now, the Lord will hand them over to the unfaithful Assyrians whose idolatry was legend. You see, this was a message that would have felt like a slap in the face of Micah's hearers. His rhetorical strategy 
was intended to come like a jolt when they realized that the oracle of judgment was not about people out there, but people in here. That it was in fact directed at them. It must have been, going back to Washer's story, it must have been how the teens must have felt when when he pointed and said, I'm talking about you. It must have been how King David felt when Nathan visited him that day to confront him about his own sin. And you remember Nathan told him this story about a, a wealthy man, a man of means, taking advantage of his poor neighbor. And as David listened to the story, he bristled with rage. But he didn't see his own sin. Until Nathan looked at him and said, David, I'm talking about you. Dear friends, Micah's message is intended to do that very kind of thing to the people of God. Sometimes this is what the church needs to be roused from her spiritual slumber. At first you might think, well, this is, this is about God's coming judgment on the nations. You know, hear you peoples of the earth. Oh, you know, he summons the whole earth. Let the Lord be a witness against you. And he goes on to say, this is all on account of God's people. See, there's a valuable but painful lesson here for us, I think. Again, aren't, aren't we quick to see the faults of the people around us today while assuming everything is in good order in our own lives? Aren't we quick to talk about the societal decline that we see, the moral decay all around us while we pat ourselves on the back? Aren't we prone to have blinders on when it comes to sin in our own lives and sin even in the lives of people we love and care about, don't we tend to hear the judgments of God being about people far removed from us, people out there, and not people in here? The Lord says through Micah, not so fast. The Lord may very well have a case against us. And Micah is reminding the people of God that the Lord will come forth from his high place to judge And it's a reminder, a necessary reminder to God's people that the Lord is never indifferent to sin. And he wants us to see the awful danger of presuming upon the grace of God. See, one of the key issues in the book of Micah is Micah is speaking to a people who identify themselves as the people of God, but then they misrepresent to the nations of the world what that God is like. In our own terms, they are Christian in name only. Cheap grace. Superficial religion. People that confess to love the Lord their God with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and yet they despise their neighbor, their brother, their sister in the Lord, exposing the fact that their confession is a sham. And Micah is coming as the prophet of the Lord to wake them up from their spiritual ease, their affluence, which has put them to sleep. 
So this is the first theme we need to come to terms with, the shock of God's judgment. Do you feel it? The jolt. Stop looking out there, Micah is saying. Start looking in here because judgment begins with the household of God. That's the first theme. Shock of God's judgment. The second theme is the attitude of God's servant. Do you see how Micah responds to this hard message which he is charged to proclaim? Verse 8, for this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals, the mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people to Jerusalem. When you read those words, there's no sense of glee there, is there? There's no sense that Micah is rubbing his hands together and saying, finally, you guys are going to get what's been coming to you. No, he's weeping. He's brokenhearted over the unbelief of God's people. He's grieving here. He's under divine compulsion to preach judgment now, but he mourns as he does it. He is overcome with grief. See, the language of of verse 8 is actually describing the sort of behavior at that time that was reserved for public funeral rites. That's the language that Micah employs here. For mourning over a lost loved one. That is how Micah feels as he proclaims this message to the people of God. It breaks his heart and he mourns over the waywardness of God's people. And when you, when you pause and you think about Micah's attitude here, aren't you quick to notice that it's very reflective of Jesus? Jesus did the very same thing, didn't he, when he approached the city of Jerusalem and he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. And the language that the Gospels use there is watered down by the English, I think. Jesus didn't just shed a tear. He was overcome with grief. He, he wept. His chest heaved. Jesus sobbed over the people of Jerusalem. And that's how Micah felt. As he proclaimed this message of the coming judgment... Maybe you've, uh, maybe you've heard the story of uh, Andrew Bonar talking to his, his friend in the ministry, Robert Murray McShane. They were walking together one day, and uh, Robert Murray McShane asked Andrew Bonar what he had been preaching. And Andrew Bonar said, well, I've been speaking to the people about the coming judgment of God. And without hesitation, Robert Murray McShane turned to his friend and said, yes, but did you preach it with tears? Did you preach it in mourning? Did you, did you preach it in such a way that communicated the weight, the gravity, the gravitas of the message that God had charged you to proclaim to the people? See, we must not refrain, dear friends, from speaking to people and to one another 
about the bad news because the reality is the good news of the gospel makes no sense without the bad news. We need to be clear that God is holy and just and righteous, that everyone must stand before the judgment seat of Christ. There is a day appointed when everyone will give an account to a just judge. Hell is a reality. We have to be clear about these things, that the only refuge is the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified and raised. But when you share the good news, as we reflect upon Micah's attitude here, we ought to be asking ourselves, what is our attitude? What is our attitude when we speak to friends and neighbors and family about the things of the Lord? I can't tell you how often I see things today on, on social media where Christians go on and on about the sin of our nation and our society and how terrible things are and how the wrath of God is coming against such sin when all that it communicates is self-righteous snobbery. Are we communicating the truth of God with the proper attitude? A heart that grieves over sin, over the lostness of humanity, over the waywardness even of God's people. Spouting off about the judgment of God makes you feel superior. Dear, dear one, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. We must proclaim the bad news, but we should do it like Micah, who is like Jesus, with a broken heart over unbelief. And so the shock of God's judgment, the attitude of God's servant, and third, the irony of God's wrath in verses 10 through 16. I wish we had the time to go through these verses in detail. We don't. But it reads like a travel log. Imagine Micah traveling throughout the land, visiting these various towns, and he's speaking a word of warning and the coming judgment and about the people's response to that message of the coming judgment. But what we, I think, can easily miss in the English translation is the the ironic play on words that Micah uses throughout these verses. Because here's what he does. As he names each town, he finds Hebrew verbs that sound like that town's name. And he creates a pun. Now, he's not doing this to be clever or cute. We need to understand that for ancient Israelites, names were linked to destinies. And Micah is is, uh, reflecting that idea here by linking town names with Hebrew verbs that were virtually omens of disaster. Okay, so for example, the people of Bethleophra, which means house of dust, he says, you will roll in the dust in grief. The residents of Saphir, which means uh, beautiful, will become a place where the people leave their homes stripped of any beauty. There will be no escape from the judgment of God for the inhabitants of Zayanan, meaning a, a, a going out or passageway or even escape. You know, so here's Micah speaking to exit town, and he's saying there will be no exit for you when the judgment of God comes. 
disaster. It all culminates when he gets to Jerusalem. What does Jerusalem mean? City of peace. What's coming to the city of peace? Disaster. If if Micah were speaking to people from Johnstown, he might say something like, Oh, people of Johnstown, flood city. Flood of God's judgment is going to roll down the hills. And there will be no attic to hide out in. There will be no high hill to run to. You will be swept away in the waters of divine judgment. This is what Micah is is communicating here. He's laying out what some have called a topography of terror because judgment is coming. Verse 14, you see, it implies it. He talks about parting gifts as people are led away. But then verse 16 comes right out and says it. Assyria is going to come and haul everyone away from their inherited land in the promised land, taking them away into exile. This is no laughing matter. This is covenant curse. And so Micah has this hard message, a message that says judgment is coming and there is no earthly hiding place. There's no escaping it. Even the very names of your town, what to you is safe and familiar, are a kind of prophecy of doom against you. See, Micah is reminding us implicitly here, I think, that the safe and familiar can often lull us into a sense of false security. Where we begin to say to our own hearts, all is well. But my friends, Micah is reminding us there is no hiding from the justice of God. And so listen, please listen. If you are here today and you are not right with God through Jesus Christ, if you are a confessing Christian who as a habit and a pattern of life continues to live just like the world around you, please, please listen to Micah's message. This is such an important message for us to hear. Yes, it's hard to hear, but it's so important. Do not be lulled into spiritual indifference by the ease of familiar things and your own comfortable, affluent life. One day the Lord will come forth from his place and he will come down and he will tread the high places. People will flee to the mountains and cry out upon the stones to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. Micah is waking us up to this reality. It's going to happen. We will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and all accounts will be settled. So wake up. That was Micah's message to his generation. And friends, it's the same message to us. Do you hear it? Does it get through? And then finally... We need to consider the path of of God's mercy. We're going to come back here to verse 15 for a moment and ask ourselves the question, where should we then flee from the wrath to come? Does this chapter give us any help in answering that question? I think it does. Have a look at verse 15. 
I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitant of Merashah. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Merashah was a defensive military position. And Micah is saying that when the invasion comes, a conqueror is even going to come there. And this military outpost is going to be overtaken. And the reference to the glory of Israel is, I think, a reference to the king of Judah and his, his, his followers, his entourage, fleeing to the cave of Adullam. Now, it should bring to mind a, a, a story from 1 Samuel when King David and his men were forced to flee into the caves of Adullam when they were being pursued for David's life. There, David had gathered around him this ragtag band of misfits. And 1 Samuel chapter 22 tells us that they were all in distress and they were bitter in soul. But the final blow of judgment is the departure of the king from his throne and the glory of Israel is hidden away in obscurity. See, it's still a word of judgment. But if you pay attention to the biblical storyline and you read verse 15 in the context of what happens in the scriptures, as it unfolds, you will notice that amidst all of the gloom of Micah's oracle here, we see the beginning rays of a hopeful dawn. Now, the full dawn, we'll have to wait to the second half of uh, the book of Micah when you know, the, the notes of gospel hope will be shining forth in full array. But, but there is here a slim beginning of hope for mercy. Because think about it, those gathered around David, as socially misfitted as they were, as weak and vulnerable and helpless as they were, they were nevertheless the beginnings of God's kingdom through David. Through this ragtag band, God established David's throne. And something like that, I think, is hinted at here as the glory of Israel, the king's people, come to see themselves as they truly are. Not as glorious and mighty in and of themselves, but instead miserable and distressed and helpless. People in need of rescuing as they fled to David's ancient stronghold. See, we're being reminded of this theme that God is going to preserve a remnant of his people there. And from there, he will build his kingdom anew. And you remember that, that eventually those who went into exile, after the promised exile occurred, they came back. They, they rebuilt Jerusalem. And from them came a descendant of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, by whom God, God will redeem his people and build his church and the, king, the, the, the gates of hell will not prevail against the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. So yes, this is a hard message here in Micah chapter 1, a message of judgment sounding a warning that we need to hear. But there's also a ray of gospel hope, I think, if you have the eyes to see it, and trace it out that one day God will still bring a new beginning for his people by great David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so just one question remaining for us, and we can answer it very briefly. What should we do with this message of Micah? 
How should we respond to Micah's warning of judgment? I think he answers that question for us in verse 16. It counsels the people to make themselves bald and to cut off their hair for the children of their delight. I didn't bring any shears with me this morning, and I don't think Micah is suggesting any new hairstyles for us this morning. He's, he's once again talking about public funeral rites. It's the language he's using here. The same terms he used to describe his own reaction to the impending judgment. He's saying, I'm weeping and grieving, and I want you to join me in mourning over sin before you must be left to mourn in the judgment to come. He's saying, mourn now or mourn later. Mourn now over sin and repentance and no comfort and mercy. Or mourn later as judgment falls. Those are the two choices. Mourn now over sin. Remember the words of Jesus, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. He was saying, blessed are those who mourn now over their sin, who have been shaken out of their comfort and ease, the ease of their lives to see how precarious their position really is before God. And come to Jesus then. Come to him in repentance and faith and weep over your transgressions. And the promise of the gospel is you will be comforted. Put it in Micah's terms, flee to Adullam, where God will build his kingdom again. See, there there is a refuge. There is a stronghold. There is a hiding place for broken, messed up, distressed, helpless sinners in great David's greater son, who bore the wrath and the curse of God so that everyone who trusts in him might be saved from the wrath to come. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your your honesty uh, in your word. And we we thank you for the way that you lovingly warn your people to call them back. The way that you warn them about the real danger of unconfessed, unrepented sin. And the reality of judgment to come. We rejoice this morning And praise you for Christ Jesus, your own son, who bore the wrath and judgment in our place in order that we might go free. We thank you that the words we sang earlier together are true. That the debt is paid and that the Lord is our salvation. Would you cause us, though, to mourn over sin? And to confess our sin to you, each and every one of us. And to know the comfort and the peace that is found in Jesus Christ. If we've fallen asleep, if we're in a spiritual slumber, please get a hold of us. Speak to our hearts and wake us up to to reality, to what is ultimately true. And we ask that you would do this so that your name would be honored and that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ would be magnified in our lives. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.